King James North Baptist Church. Such a joy and delight to be with you today, though we be together virtually. Have you ever experienced God's favor? Maybe you've experienced God's favor in a moment where you've been walking through a dry run. You haven't felt his presence lately, and then God just powerfully and profoundly shows up, and you experience his favor. Maybe there's been a lengthy sickness or illness, and God grants you favor. Maybe in the healing of that sickness, maybe in just relief of it for a time. But maybe you've experienced God's favor in other ways. Maybe you've experienced God's favor because of your own sin that's been grieving God, whatever that would be. Maybe you've worked yourself into some insurmountable financial debt, and God graciously allows you to pay it off. Or maybe you've ruined relationships. Maybe there's some bitterness or envy or jealousy because of something you've done, and God grants restoration. And then, even after God's favor, you find yourself sinning again. That's Genesis 9 through to 11. God grants his favor to Noah and his family, yet we find his family and their descendants spiraling into sin and God's determination to save a people for himself. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 9. I'm going to walk through this entire chapter and just a portion of chapter 11. Verse 1 of Genesis 9, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. We have here what's reminiscent of Genesis when God is blessing Adam and Eve. And God takes the commissioning of Genesis 1 and he offers it now to Noah and his family. He says this is the new beginning. I'm granting you the same commission that I granted Adam and Eve. Go, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, and scatter across the earth. Fill the earth. Do that. Now what God wants to do in doing this is God wants to show them that life is sacred. In this moment, Noah and his family, after spending nearly a year on the ark, watching all of humanity be wiped out by God's power and wrath, watching all vegetation, all life form be wiped out, they could think, well, God thinks life is cheap. God at any moment could just smite us. God at any moment could just destroy us. God at any moment could just take us out. And God right now in chapter 9 in these first few verses is going to show them, no, life is worth preserving, life is worth producing, life is worth protecting. Life is worth producing, life is worth protecting, life is worth preserving. And God's going to show them that and the importance and value he has on life. So he starts out by saying, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, showing them life is sacred even after the flood. Verse 2. So the fear and dread of you will fall on all of the beasts of the earth and all of the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. God firstly starts out and comprehensively again offers everything to Noah and his family as he did to Adam and Eve. And not just dominion over the animals as he did to Adam and Eve, but as, allows them to use them for food. So God says, I want you to know that everything is now yours. All the beasts, all the birds, every creature, all the fish, 
The all and everys is God's comprehensiveness in this. God is saying, I'm not leaving anything out. He only adds one caveat, which says, you can't eat meat with its lifeblood still in it. So you need to drain the lifeblood out. Don't eat meat with lifeblood in it. Drain the blood out. And he says this, this is why I, or how valuable I think life is. If anything takes your life for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting, even if that's an animal. He said, I want you to know, for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. So even if an animal, he goes on to say, I will demand an accounting for every animal. That's not animal against animal. That's animal against humanity. God says, I want to preserve life so much that I want you to produce life, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and I will demand an accounting even of the animals if they take the life of a human. I want you to preserve life. But God also wants us to protect life. Note this, verse 5. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of every human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made humanity. And as for you, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So you have these verses bookended by being fruitful, multiplying, and increasing across the earth. It's bookended by that as God says, I want you to go out and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to know that you have free reign and dominion over everything, including the ability to eat meat, but not with its lifeblood. And I will demand an accounting of the animals if they take your life. And then God says, I want you to know that you are so important to me that if someone takes your life, their life should be taken. Their life should be taken. There is an accountability for them. Because humanity does not have the ultimate authority over life or power over life. God does. So God's saying, I don't want you to take life for granted. Life is a precious and special gift from me. Don't take it for granted. And if someone does, if someone takes life for granted, notice what he calls it. If they shed blood because they are made in the image of God, that their life should also be taken. That their life should also be taken. This is actually why I believe in capital punishment. I believe that these verses here teach God's value of life and that he's very clear here that if life is taken from someone else, that their life should be taken. Now, I'm not going to get into this in length today. This is not a sermon on ethics. I would hold that this is only done in clear-cut cases where there is substantial evidence that is concrete. But this is pre-law. So some people will come to me and say, well, why would we follow this? It's out of the Old Testament. Well, when we're talking about Old Testament law, we're talking about Levitical law that is given to govern a nation, the nation of Israel. This is pre-law, and its argument is out of the image-bearing of God. It's a created order argument, meaning God is saying that because you, because this is happening based on the fact that death or murder on my image being taken, then I believe what he's saying is that I grant authority to those in authority to take their life. Very controversial, but I throw that out today for something to think about. And then God grants them the commissioning again in verse 7. Increase in number, multiply on the earth, increase upon it. Verse 8, God's covenant. Then God says to Noah and to his sons with him, I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. 
and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every creature on the earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God's about to establish his covenant. This is the second time we found this term in scripture. We found it also earlier in the account of Noah that we looked at last week. And so God says, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. God's going to show himself to be the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And this will now be God's pattern through human history. God will make covenant and God will keep covenant. He will make covenant in chapter 12 and chapter 15 with Abraham. He will make covenant with David. He will show his covenant to be true with Jesus. Through Jesus, he will make covenant with us, his people. God will show himself to be the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God now through human history. He shows its comprehensiveness. The covenant is for you, Noah, and your descendants, but it also has an effect on every creature, on the birds, the livestock, every wild animal, on all those that came out of the ark with you, on every creature on earth. And then God says here what part of his covenant will entail. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, some of you may think automatically, well, what about tsunamis? Tens of thousands of people died in some of these tsunamis. What about other floods where people die? God isn't saying there will never be flood again. God is saying, I will never destroy the earth by flood again. I will never destroy all of the earth by flood again. That will not be the destructive pattern. Because Noah and his family have just gone through the flood. The eight of them were just on the ark for a year. I mean, could you imagine walking up onto the upper deck of that ark and just looking out over on vastless sea of water day after day after day after day? Feeling hopeless at times, but believing that God has preserved you on this ark. So God says, that will never happen again because I value life too much. And then God said this, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between you and me and every living creature with you. It's a covenant for all generations to come. I will set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who scattered over the whole earth. So God says, I'm establishing a covenant. I'm establishing it with you, Noah, with your children, and with all of humanity for all generations to come. I'm establishing the covenant of the rainbow. The rainbow that shows up in the clouds at the end of the storm. I'm establishing that covenant so that you will know that at the end of every storm, there is bright hope. There is grace. That this storm will not last. That though at times the clouds may be dark, that oh, at, all, at times the rain may pour, though at times the earth may begin to swell up with water, it is not going to flood all of the earth again. There will be an end, and that end will be shown in the rainbow. And the rainbow will be my grace to you and to all of humanity. 
Every commentator I have read has suggested this. I have never thought of this before. But it was in all five of the commentators I read on Genesis. That the rainbow is the symbol of God's warrior bow placed in the non-warrior position. It's placed down. And the rainbow is the arc of the bow or God's bow, God's wrathful bow, placed, arced down. Because that would have been the predominant means of war at that time or means of acquiring food would have been the bow and arrow. And that this is the symbol of God's bow being placed in the passive position, in the non-warrior position. It was a sign to God's people then, to Noah and his children and their children, that God was not at war with them, but rather God was offering peace. That God was offering grace. That God was offering hope. And so the rainbow is the sign that God will never destroy all of life. I want you to note this. This is really important. Verse 14. I will remember my covenant with you whenever I see the rainbow. I, verse 16, will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures. It never says, Noah, when you see this, you will remember my covenant. It says, when I see it, I will remember my covenant. This is Noah and his family and us being able to look at the sky and say, God's still at work. God hasn't forgotten us. God's covenant remains true. He remembers. And remember from last week, remembering isn't that God has forgotten something. It's that God is committed to his commitments. That God will prove himself to be faithful to the very things he has said he will do and accomplish. To the very promises he has enacted. God will remain faithful. And so every time we look and see a rainbow in the sky, and sometimes I've looked out with the kids and there's been two or three of them at one time, and you can just see rainbow overlapping rainbow. God is saying, my bow is down. My grace is abundant. My hope is certain. And I have remembered you. I have remembered you. You are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. Verse 20. Now Noah was a man of the soil. He, was, he proceeded to plant a, a vineyard. He was a farmer. He planted a vineyard. He drank some of its wine. He became drunk. He lay uncovered. That's naked inside his tent. Ham, the son of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Jephthah took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They walked in backward and they covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they could not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of the slaves. He will be to his brothers. Now just pause there for a moment. This is a complex moment. So here we have Noah, who was righteous and blameless and walked with God, now drunk and naked. That contrast has thrown commentators, pastors, and academics for generations. What happened to Noah? Was this an accident? Did he purposely get drunk? Was he overwhelmed by being the last eight people left on the planet? Bible doesn't say. God offers zero commentary on Noah's drunkenness. But it does talk about here two of the abuses of wine. One is drunkenness, of which God will forbid. The other is nakedness, leading to shame. So Ham goes in, 
sees that he's naked and he tells his brothers. But he's not cursed. His youngest son, Canaan, is cursed. Why is Ham not cursed and his youngest son, Canaan, cursed? I mean, what is going on here? Why, why is God, why is, sorry, Noah acting in this way? This is also the first time Noah speaks in this whole account of Noah. It's always God speaking to Noah. The first time Noah speaks in the whole account of Noah is a curse. The first time we have an account of Noah speaking. So here we have Noah who's blameless, righteous, and walked with God, drunk and naked. We have his one son who walked in to tell his other brothers. Those brothers cover him, and Noah curses his son's son, his grandson instead of his son. So let me walk through a couple of thoughts here. One is this. Likely from the text and the way you're reading it, Ham took Noah's nakedness and shame and declared it. What he should have done is just covered his dad like his brothers. I mean, he would have not not seen Noah like his brothers who walked in backward. He would have walked in, seen his dad's nakedness, covered him left, and never told a soul. Just left it. And in that, he would have been righteous. But instead, he went out and said to his brothers, probably something to this effect, hey, guys, dad's drunk and naked in the tent. It's kind of funny. I don't know if he said it was kind of funny. But he pointed it out to them in a way that declared Noah's shame to others. It increased his shame. So instead of honoring his dad, he increased his dad's shame by declaring it. His brothers discreetly took a piece of cloth, large piece, a garment, it says. They walked in backwards with the garment over them until they bumped into their dad, I guess. Maybe he was on his bed. I have no clue. And they threw it on him so that his nakedness was covered. And when his dad came out of the stupor, Noah is furious. And Noah curses Ham's son. And his youngest son. Not all of his sons. His one son. Why does God, or why does uh, Noah choose to do that? Here's the answer. Are you ready? This is profound. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. We can speculate all we want. There's all kinds. Of, yeah, you can read if you want later. At your leisure, I can send you pages and pages and pages of speculation. Some would suggest, oh, do I even get into this? That when he saw his father naked uh, uh, and told his brothers outside that the language that was there, um, the fact that he had seen his father naked actually means that he did something to his father sexually. Or it means he did something to his mother sexually. That is nowhere in the text. That is not just speculation. That is sheer make-believe. It's nowhere there. Not in the text. All we know is that Ham did not cover his father's nakedness, but declared his shame. And so Noah curses him. Now I want you to note that Noah cursing him is not like God cursing him. In fact, Noah doesn't have the authority to curse someone in the way that God does. So does this curse even carry any weight? It's more like Noah saying, I wish this upon you. Noah can't declare this upon him. But he does curse Ham's son. And says, you will be a slave to your brothers. Then he says, verse 26, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May, father, may Canaan be slaves of Shem. And may God extend Jepheth's territory. And may Jepheth live in the tents of Shem. 
That means may they be comrades. May they be, be those that are united. And may Canaan be the slave of Jephthah. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. So he lived a total of 950 years. And then he died, and that's it. And then you have chapter 10 that gives the genealogies of Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. And then we find that we come to chapter 11, the video we saw, the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but most of us don't know the names of our great-grandfathers. In fact, I said this at a conference I was at five years ago. My brother was there, my parents were there, my sister was there, and, and after uh, kind of speaking, they all kind of came up to me, and uh, my brother was disturbed. He was like, I sat there thinking, you're right, I know my dad's name, I know my grandfather's name, I don't know, I can't name my great-grandfather. Now, of course, you need to know, Lunch became, my dad is our family historian. He's created the genealogy of our family. We have this massive family tree. Lunch became my dad telling the story of his family and my mom telling the story of her family so that we could remember the grandparents' names. And I can't right now, but I do know I know them. I thought of this this morning. But most of us can't name our great-grandparent. Names are easily forgotten. Legacies are easily lost. I mean, the only time I ever go and visit my grandparents' grave I, graves, any of the uh, four of them, five of them when you include that my grandfather remarried, is when I happen to be there, right? My one set of grandparents is buried at the church that I grew up at. My other set not far away, my dad's parents at the church that he grew up at, a liberal church. And so if I go to either of those places, I may walk into the cemetery to see my grandparents' graves. But it's not like I even commonly do that. It's not like I never drive there to do that. Easily forgotten. Names. My children couldn't name my grandparents their names. Um, they could name my, my mother's uh, father because he only passed away in 2016, so they knew him well till then. But I remember being held by my great-grandmother on my mom's side. Um, I remember sitting in her lap. I couldn't tell you what her name is now at all. Easily forgotten. So the whole world has one language in common speech. Now just pause there for a moment. Chapter 10 three times tells us that people spoke their own language. So what in the world is going on here? Is this saying in this quote-unquote discrepancy that chapter 10 is a summarization of a larger portion of Genesis and it's not in chronological order? That's possible. Or is it saying that other dialects were being developed and that there was still a common language on the earth? That's where I would more lean that there was other dialects, either tribal dialects that were being developed, but there was still a common language that was united then. That's what I would think. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks, bricks and bake them thoroughly, and let's use bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build our city and a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. ourselves uh, otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole earth. So I want you to know, one, they want to reach heaven. Two, they want to make a name for themselves. They want to be remembered. They don't want to be forgotten. They want their name to count. They want the highway named after them. Well, this is instead the tower. But they want something named after them, the street, the name, the, whatever it would be, and they want to stay together. It was God's name who was to be glorified. They were commanded to scatter, and they weren't, and they thought they could reach heaven. Note verse 5. Well, the Lord came down. That's how high they got. 
The Lord had to come down. They're going to reach to him to heaven, but the Lord has to step down. This is God's irony right here in these verses, 5 to 7. You could just hear the irony. God came down to see the tower the people were building. I mean, God couldn't even see it from heaven. Now, he could. He's God. But the language here is God's like, what are, they, what are they doing down there? What's going on? Oh, they're trying to build a name for themselves, build a tower. Now, of course God could see it. Of course God knows. But the idea of the language is God had to come way down to even see what they were doing. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan is impossible for them. Now, I want you to note the irony here. They said they were going to build a tower that would reach to heaven. The tower didn't reach anywhere near heaven. God had to reach down or come down even to see it. And God says, man, if they could do this, they can do anything. God's mocking humanity. God's not saying they can accomplish anything they want. God's saying, oh, they think they can make a name for themselves. They think they can outdo me. They think they can reach to the heavens, as if the heaven could be reached by a tower. Now, what he is saying, I believe, is that the united humanity has this propensity for sin. You saw it in the video. They did a really good job of this, actually. That is staggering. And so God wants them to scatter. So he confuses their language. Maybe he took away the common language in allowing them to only speak their dialects. And so now they couldn't understand each other. God doesn't tell us how he does it. He just does it. And so now they can't understand each other. And so, yes, as the video showed, when someone says, pass me a brick, and not, they don't know what to do. So this tower is left half done, and they all leave. And they scatter across the world. So verse 8. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. They stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So God dispersed them, because together... The propensity, or the propensity for evil was so great. You know, you see this all the time. It bridges all types of socioeconomic demographics and cultural barriers. Talking to a friend in Bimbrook, and his wife was saying that when you gather on their social media, it's all about who's in and who's not in. It's sometimes about shaming people or naming people, or it's at times about ostracizing people, it's about people who have more against people who have less. And so they're like, we won't even join this stuff. Because it just becomes so elitist. It's so evil, the words they use. And then you can flip to those living in more extreme poverty. And one of the reasons they dismantled some of the encampments across the city is because when you had 70 tents filled with 120 people living along Ferguson Street, you had a mayor of Ferguson Street you had the police, quote-unquote, or the enforcers of Ferguson Street. You had the criminals involved in Ferguson Street. And within that encampment, you had a full Lord of the Flies going on. And so in that, they were dispersed. One of the reasons, not the full reason, one of the reasons. And so the propensity for evil when we gather together and the inclination for us to conceive of new ways to, in our pride, arrogantly defy the Lord grows greater without him. But God still has a plan. And so if you read through down to the end of chapter 11 later, you'll find that God then traces the lineage of Shem. And at the end of Shem's line, 
is the next major figure in biblical history, Abram. Abram, who follows with his father out toward the land of the Chaldeans to Ur, not quite to there, but close. And that God is going to, we'll get to this next week, call Abram out to leave his family and to follow him. And Abram's going to do it. Because God is always about saving a people for himself. He loves to save. He delights in doing so. God does not want our propensity to be for evil, but for good. He doesn't want us to make a name for ourselves, but rather a name for him. He knows that we will be most satisfied when he is most glorified. That we will be most satisfied in how we've been created when he is most glorified in the way we're living our lives. He knows that. He knows that that's how he's wired us. He knows that that's how he's crafted us because we're made in his image and likeness. And in being made in his image and likeness, the greatest portion of that is that we're image bearers created to be in relationship and not just in relationship with each other, but relationship with him. It's out of the overflow of his relationship as father, son, and spirit that he longs to grant us relationship with us to himself. That's why Jesus can pray, Father, as you and I are one, may you make them one. And that oneness is a unified oneness with each other because of who we are in Christ. Because of what Christ has done in us and then through us. And so God is about saving a people. The rainbow, his bow in passive position reminding us that his grace and hope abounds. He's about saving and preserving and protecting life. And so he'll never destroy the earth, the entire earth by flood again. And though we would rebel, though this righteous, blameless man who walked with God would be found drunk and naked, though he would utter curse upon his grandson, though humanity would think they could build a name for themselves and reach to God not needing him because they thought their name could be greater than his name, God graciously through the line of Shem will call a man named Abraham. Abram first. He'll name him Abraham. And in doing so, he'll grant him covenant. And in granting him covenant, he says, I'm creating one with you as the God-making, God-keeping covenant that I will see through to the end. And because we couldn't keep our end of the covenant, God sent his son Jesus. So that God could keep his end of the covenant. And God could keep our end of the covenant. And God could grant us salvation. That's how much he longs to save us. That's how much he longs to work in our lives. That's how much he longs to offer us grace and hope. That's how much he wants to offer us favor. God wants to show you that you are so much his child. So his child. That he will stop at nothing to grant you abundant life. But it's found in being most satisfied in how God has made you and what he's done in you and how he longs you to glorify his name. I want you to note that when God scatters the people at the Tower of Babel, and Amanda, you guys can come up, that unlike all of the other judgments of God, where he curses humanity for their sin, but he offers promises of Messiah. He says to the serpent, uh, you will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. He offers garment of clothing to Adam and Eve, 
as they're being cast out of the garden. He offers a mark on Cain, the fugitive, and he offers a sign in the sky, the rainbow to Noah and his family, that no provision is granted as he scatters the people across the world, but he knows he's bringing one. He's about to call a man to follow him and through that man to bless all nations, not just one nation, but all nations through that nation. Because from that nation will come the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord, who will die so that we can be saved, who will take our sin upon himself on the cross so that the wrath of the Father can be satisfied so that we can be the children of God. Because he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who loves you with an unstoppable, unending love. Would you pray with me? We are so thankful, O oh God, for your love, and we're thankful for your covenant, for the covenant of rainbow, the promise of hope, for the covenant that you will offer Abram, and the fact that through him you will establish a nation from that nation Messiah will come. We thank you that that covenant includes us and your salvation into our lives. And now as we sing praise to your name, because of your great work in our lives, we ask, oh God, that you would meet with us, for we need you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.